just a little heads up at the start that this episode will feature discussions of mental health, including therapy, and the description of a panic attack. We also discuss what might be considered the fear-inducing aspects of invertebrates, such as parasitization. If you fancy something lighter, no worries. Hello and welcome to Grubbing in the Filth with me, Tom Sharp. In creating this podcast, I didn't want to make something that felt like a defence of invertebrates. The idea of constantly trying to win people over would be exhausting. Here and there, sure. This episode isn't about trying to win people round. And it's not really about invertebrates per se. It's a conversation and an examination of our relationship with invertebrates. It's quite easy, as someone who likes them, to smugly paint a picture of yourself as an enlightened figure of culture compared to the people who are revolted by and frightened by our little creeping, crawling pals. It's easy to think of that prevalent view that the invertebrate is an object of hatred and disgust as an ignorant, brainless mentality. In this episode, we're going to try and be a bit more analytic, empathetic even, looking at why people are frightened of invertebrates, from the hatred we might feel towards errant flies on the countertop, to the profoundly debilitating effects of phobias. I should stress that my personal starting point here is that any and all animals demand respect, however much they might offend our cultural sensibilities. I believe that an awareness of and respect for invertebrate life is a fundamentally good thing. And as such, of course, I do think it's right to defend invertebrates, and I could spend a great deal of time reciting the facts about pollination and decomposition and all that. In exploring the notion that insects and invertebrates are frightening, and in exploring the aspects of them that are frightening, I'm not trying to condemn anything or suggest that fear and horror is inevitable or appropriate. Surely, it's the case that understanding why we and others feel the way we do is a helpful, positive thing. It's not helpful to laugh off or ridicule people for the way they feel, particularly when invertebrates have such a public image crisis. So all that said, is entomophobia and invertebrate fear more broadly cultural or inevitable? Are invertebrates misunderstood or inherently revolting? Moreover, why is it that some of us are so fascinated by invertebrate life? What draws us to these strange creatures in spite of their low standing. All of this and much more as we grub in the mental filth. Join me then as me and my guest, author and entomologist Geoffrey Lockwood, delve cheerfully and resolutely into a challenging world of horror and hatred, fondness and fascination. This episode is more of an out-and-out conversation than some of the others. The basis of that conversation, the impetus behind it, is the fascinating book The Infested Mind by my guest Geoffrey Lockwood, who will introduce himself shortly. I think a conversation, discourse, is the best way to get to the heart of this topic. We're not dealing here with anatomy and specific insect lifestyles or facts. This is a conversation about ideas and half-formed notions and instinctual responses. I have to say that I thoroughly enjoyed the chat and... I think you will too. Sorry though about my creaky chair chiming in occasionally throughout the episode as I rock thoughtfully to and fro. I should say, early on in this episode I make a point about the terms insect and invertebrate and despite my early suggestion that I'll try and make an effort in getting that right every time, I quite frequently in this episode say insect when I do mean invertebrate, bundling in the spiders and the centipedes and so on. So we'll have to cope with that. Hiya Jeff. how are you this evening? Oh, I'm doing very well. Thank you, Tom. 
I'm glad to hear it. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me. We're going to have a chat about our relationship with invertebrates. Not not mine and yours specifically, but the wider topic, I guess, of invertebrate human relations. Um, yeah, the way humans relate to these animals. I'm I'm constantly aware when we when I talk about these things that I'm about to say insect, and then I need to correct myself and say invertebrate. It kind of if I do ever say one, meaning the other. Apologies there. I suppose we put it. We're used to it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But it's it's what is it? Ninety five percent insects, right? It's it's far outweighs oh, probably. The, the others. Yes. Could you outline what is your relationship with with these animals? Your your personal history and your professional history with them. Right. So let me dial back the time here. I earned a a PhD in entomology uh, at Louisiana State University way back in 1985. Um, we go back before that, even as a child, I was fascinated by insects. Um, insects and spiders um, really captivated me. And so sometimes they, you know, sometimes they say uh, entomologist is, they talk, talk about the, the Peter Pan syndrome. An entomologist is a little boy who never grew up. Um, and there is a sense of, of childlike wonder, I think, that, that keeps you, attracts you to the field and keeps you in the field. And it drew me into uh, this PhD program in 1985, where I worked on uh, chemical communication uh, in a, an organism, an insect called the southern green stink bug, um, just a marvelous uh, little fellow. Um, and then I did a short postdoctoral uh, appointment uh, doing research on horn flies. These are blood feeding flies on cattle. They're not very pleasant creatures. Um, then I was hired in 1986 uh, to uh, conduct research and to do teaching in entomology. And my assignment was the rangeland grasshoppers, their ecology and management at the University of Wyoming. We have a lot of open grasslands here and uh, grasshopper uh, uh, populations can rise very rapidly and compete with livestock for that forage. Um, and in the course of several years, many years, I developed a, a new method for controlling grasshoppers that's um, now used across the Western United States. And I also conducted international research on locusts, um, primarily in Asia, both China and Russia, and a bit of time in Kazakhstan, um, and did some work in Australia as well. So all of that was going very well, but I kind of reached a point in my career where um, Science was still a necessary, but I guess I could say not a sufficient basis for my own personal and professional fulfillment. So I took a position split between uh, the Department of Philosophy, where I do um, environmental ethics, natural resource ethics, and philosophy of ecology, and in the creative writing program, uh, which is, um, you know, where you ran across my book, The Infested Mind. So, um, you know, in a lot of that work, I I still draw upon my entomology, still draw upon insects as sort of raw material. Well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned, and before we get on to talking about The Infested Mind, that, that fantastic book, that, you know, this Peter Pan idea, and in terms of our relationship with invertebrates, I think a lot of people, that relationship is forged pretty early on. And most entomologists or most people who work with animals I've spoken to, even more broadly, have that kind of formative experience of, of insects and things. I guess it's insects and invertebrates being a safari to a young person in some respects, but it's a time in your life where it's very easy to get 
to to be turned off these things by by cartoons or by you know the kind of the, the cultural heft of invertebrates. I think that's true. I, I I think we are strongly inclined as children to interact with with insects and other invertebrates. I think they fascinate us, and um, I think um, you know society pretty much beats the curiosity out of most <laughs> children, and that um, and that's kind of sad. But uh, some of us manage to maintain our our fascination, and we grow up to become entomologists. Absolutely, or um, just people who kind of talk about them occasionally on a on an internet thing. Um, so, so you mentioned The Infested Mind, a fascinating book that you wrote. And it's not a book about the fear of insects. It's, it, it's broader than that. It's about the relationships we build with insects and invertebrates. So fear certainly being a, a great deal of that, but also adoration. And I think one thing I liked about the book is, is that balance. The, the, it's not just about fear and hatred. It's, it, it's about more than that. And it, it treats... It treats fear and disgust and issues that essentially cross over into mental health with a kind of more of a compassion, with a great deal of compassion, I think. So it's by no means a condemnation of people who are frightened of insects. Because that, that fear of insects is the thing that I keep having to come back to in, in doing this project as a kind of elephant in the room, is that the thing that I'm passionate about and the thing I'm talking about frightens a lot of people. So as someone who's worked extensively with invertebrates, but has also given careful thought to them and who has written this book, I wanted to kind of just pose a, a very open question to you at the start of this, which is, are invertebrates frightening? <laughs> um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think, you know, empirically, uh, we'd have to say, yes, they're frightening because people are frightened of them. Um, but I guess, you know, maybe the question is, should we be frightened of insects or invertebrates? And, you know, I, I think... Um, insects and, and their relatives, maybe we'll think of insects and spiders here and kind of lump them together. I think they're often disturbing. I don't know that they're often or necessarily frightening. So when a cockroach dashes across the kitchen floor and hides under your refrigerator, I don't know that you're frightened. Um, I think you're disturbed. You're unsettled. Um, now, in some cases, right. they're fright frightening, you know, a, a, you know, a um, hornet comes after you and is, you know, stings you, that's kind of a frightening encounter. Um, and I guess in a very few cases, they're kind of endearing, you know, the, the butterfly in the garden. So I would, I would guess that um, many or maybe most of our encounters are more disturbing um, than they are truly frightening. Although for some people, um, fear is, um, fear and disgust are, are, are very strong emotional responses. And, and you can't deny that that they're having those experiences. Would you say that there is a, a distinction to be drawn between fear and disgust? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, it's really kind of fascinating. Of the of the seven or so what they call universal human emotions, two are aversive, and these are emotions seen cross-cultural um, everywhere around the planet where there are human beings. Um, these two aversive emotions um, uh, emerge, and they are fear and disgust. And difference is um, fear tends to drive us, well, it physiologically fear elevates our heart rate, elevates our respiration, and puts us into um, kind of a flight mode or a fight or flight mode. Uh, disgust mm. is kind of more complex. It's a relatively recent evolutionary 
we think it is, an evolutionary response. And it's um, a response to anticipated revulsion or, or contamination. Um, actually includes a drop in blood pressure rather than you know, a rise in heartbeat and blood pressure. Um, and it um, oftentimes is associated, interestingly enough, with a kind of fascination. It, it kind of has this um, intrigue, right, to, to, to see what it is that offends you. Um, you're not usually interested in seeing, you know, getting closer to that snake, um, you know, but as a kid, you know, getting closer to that squashed frog, um, you know, is, is something yes. that, uh, you know, that happens. So, um, so they are both aversive in the sense that, you know, we, we don't like to have them and, and, you know, they warn us of danger, right? One mm. is the dangers, if you will, of pain or imminent death. The other is the danger of, of um, contamination or infection. Um, so they are different. There was an experiment done. I, I just think this is really funny to try to sort them out. And you can't be afraid and disgusted both. Right? It's not an either or deal. But if I put sure. a cookie on a plate, imagine this, I put a cookie on a plate and then I put a spider on the cookie and I say, Tom, would you like to eat that cookie? And you say, oh God, no, I don't want to eat that cookie. It's got a spider on it. And then I shoo the spider off. Right. So it's no longer on the cookie. As a matter of fact, it's not mm. even in your visual field. And then I say, Tom, would you like to eat the cookie now? And you say, oh, sure, I'll eat that cookie. Um, that's an indication that you were afraid of the spider. But if I say, would you like to eat the cookie now? And you say, oh, yuck, there was a spider on it. That's an indication that you were disgusted by the spider. So even though right. it's gone, right, it's left behind a signal that and so the, the, the spider test, the cookie spider test, is kind of a way of sorting out whether people are afraid or disgusted or perhaps both. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good little test, actually. I like that a lot. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to, to talk about this idea of, of fear, it being that we're kind of, you've mentioned that maybe we should push back against that fear, I guess, or, or against that disgust. And there, there is good to be gained from that. As someone who's enthusiastic about invertebrate life, I think that's something that's worth doing. I think respect for life generally is a, is a good thing. But, but people are frightened of them, and I don't want to be scornful of that. I want to be mindful of it. And in your book, you outline six things, six aspects of insects which frighten people. And I wondered... There's a certain degree of revelation and kind of getting things to find that you always felt you knew but couldn't put your finger on. So would it be okay just to outline these six reasons that, that we associate with, with insect fear? Sure, sure. Um, you know, maybe the first one to, to mention is um, the perception of, the, of uh, what we might call an invasion of our body or our space. It could be our home. Oftentimes it's our body. So um, having an insect on you or in you, right, or close to you is is crossing a, a barrier. And so we don't we don't want to have our personal space, whether it's our home or our body, invaded. And this actually I think gives rise to that myth of the earwig, right? That these insects would crawl into mm. your ear and then um, you know take up residence there. Um, and so um, so fear of invasion. Um, or repulsion with invasion, I suppose. Uh, a second one is um, they tend 
they have these behaviors where they evade us or evade our efforts to assault them. Um, you know, the best example of this is you turn on the lights and the cockroaches uh, on the kitchen counter bolt, right, for a hiding mm. place. Or the flies trying to escape you, I guess. The flies trying to escape, um, right? So so they have a, an ability to e- evade us. Now, the third thing is is actually um, pretty sensible. That is, they can cause harm, right? They they can inflict mm. pain. We can be stung or bitten by insects. Um, they can transmit disease. Um, that's most certainly true. Uh, you know, think of the Black Death, right, in the 14th century. Sure. Um, you know, 30% of Europe dies of bubonic plague. Um, that's not a good thing. Um, it's a reasonable fear. They, yeah, it's a reasonable fear. Um, and hunger, right? So they can they can compete with us for our food. Um, so pain, disease, and hunger. So harm. Harm would be uh, a factor. Um, you, know, a, a, you know, a fourth one would be this capacity for their rapid population growth, their ability to sort of overwhelm us numerically. Um, and I don't know how many of your listeners will be aware of the um, the emerging and ongoing plague of the desert locust in Africa and the Middle East right now. Um, but we're looking at billions of these insects um, pouring forth. And this this notion of them or this perception of them as reaching enormous numbers is, is and overwhelming us. It's, it's sort of a way of, um, you know, it, it, it takes us off our pedestal. Um, so there's that. Um, you know, next we'd have, you know, their capacity, if you will, to defy, and I don't mean that they're consciously doing this, but they defy our will and our control. They they can resist our insecticides. Um, you know, we try to control our world, and damn it, the insects are good at putting us back in our place. <laughs> um, you know, refusing our our power. Um, and finally, and, and I think most, in some ways, most importantly, there is a sense when you encounter an insect, especially, you know, if you really spend some time looking at it. It generates a kind of an uncomfortable sense of the of, of an other, kind of an alien presence. It um, and it's funny because if you tell people, you know, I study insects, um, they'll often say, "Well, oh, that's really interesting," but you know, I'm more fascinated by animals. And then you have to explain that yes. insects are animals, but they're so different from us that we don't necessarily perceive. I mean, they're they're in this. They're in this kind of nebulous zone. We, we kind of intuit that they're animals, right? But they've got too many legs and they have these strange behaviors and they do things that, um, that are disturbing to us. And so this kind of, I like to call it the sense of the other or of the alien. Um, and, and, and of course, that's a feature that, you know, filmmakers have tapped into for decades. Um, so they disturb us kind of psychologically with this otherness. I think one of the things you mentioned in the book is this idea that somehow our fear of insects relates to our insecurities about about our own role as an animal maybe about that our own insecurities our sense of individuality is in some way threatened by insects yeah there is and it's interesting there is this sense of um you know how to put this well right there's a sense of their overwhelming uh fecundity right um mm. and, and this sort of crosses the line perhaps you know with the you know, with sort of a moral judgment that that the things are are reproducing at these phenomenal rates, and um, you know, and I think that ties into this kind of aversion to them. But then, 
you know, our insecurity, I think, often is rooted in our, our need or our sense for controlling our environment. We want, you know, to be um, uh, shaping the world around us. And insects, because of this, particularly because of this capacity to invade and evade, disturb our sense of being in control. Um, mm. and, and that's unsettling. In a way, I guess, with insects or invertebrates more broadly, again, trying to kind of cover both camps, in a way that, you know, we, we can cattle or dogs bend to our will. We, we find ways to relate to them. They sort of mm. exist within our, our plane. We can, we can boss them around to a degree in a way that we simply can't with insects, right? No, you're absolutely right. In the, <laughs> you mentioned you put it that way. The insect that we probably have the longest relationship with in terms of bossing it around is the honeybee. Um, but even there, there's, there's a, a tense dynamic, right? Because, um, you know, it, you know, stings hurt and a lot of stings can be very bad for you. Um, and so you're in a dynamic, tense relationship. Um, I have a good friend who's a beekeeper, um, you know, and, and he says bees make you uh, keenly aware of yourself and your moment, because if you get forgetful um, and you move too quickly or you uh, you trap one between, you know, two, you know, your hand and, and, and maybe your neck or something, you get stung. And he thinks they're wonderful teachers for being keenly aware of being in the moment. <laughs> Um, because they give you these little painful lessons. But yeah, so, you know, there's an insect that we've controlled in a sense, but even there, there's, you know, the, the power dynamic is not entirely in our favor. Well, thinking about sort of being scared of insects, you know, I, I, I like to think that I'm not scared of insects, but the fact is, if a spider runs across the room and I didn't expect it, it makes me jump. And when a moth lands on me, I, I do the there's a moth on me dance you know it's it's not a, a nice encounter <laughs> even though i on on some level i i, I tell myself you know I, I like these creatures i'm intrigued by them but there is a yeah you don't want them invading your space you are wary of their movements maybe to a degree i'm sure some people are and, and fair play to them in your book you mention you mention a moment that you had in which in which you had an adverse reaction to the insects around you even though you were someone with a degree of expertise in these in these creatures, with the, with the grasshoppers you mentioned earlier, I think, would it be okay to tell that story? Sure, sure. It's uh, um, you know, the story. So I'd been studying grasshoppers on what we in uh, U.S. call rangeland. You can think of it as prairie or steppe, um, for many years. And um, you know, I was used to grasshoppers. I had handled them. Um, you know, I was very familiar with them. We had a relationship that was <laughs> that was kind of uh, it was peaceful um, until uh, this one day. I was it was a hot summer day, late kind of late in summer, um, in a place um, not far from Laramie called Wayland Canyon, outside of a, a little town called Guernsey. Um, and in this in this this landscape, um, I knew there was a pretty high density of, of grasshoppers. And by that, I mean somewhere probably around 15 to 20 per square meter. Um, so that's a that's a pretty good number of grasshoppers. Uh, it's not overwhelming, but uh, you, you're not going to mistake that you're the only thing out there. Um, and it was, I mean, it was a very, very dry uh, season. The grasses, which were maybe only, you know, boot high, um, 
um, had had dried to kind of a crispy brown. It was like walking on on a, a breakfast cereal. Um, and so the grasshoppers would skitter out from in front of me, which was uh, which was uh, pretty normal. And then I, I, my eye sort of caught uh, a draw and a a, a, uh, a feature in the landscape where the water has carved out kind of a dry, a, a small dry canyon. Um, and in fact, I could enter this this draw um, from one end, and I noticed that down in the bottom of the draw um, was the only green plants to be found on on this entire expanse of of rangeland. And so I knew that it was likely there were a lot of grasshoppers in the bottom of the draw. And so I began to descend. And so uh, as I get toward the bottom of this draw, and you can imagine a little gully that's maybe um, um, 20 feet wide, um, whatever that is, uh, 20 feet, maybe seven meters wide. Um, and, uh, it's deeper than I am. So it's probably three meters or a little bit more than that deep. Um, and as I descend into this sort of narrow cut, um, that's very filled with green plants, I notice the density of grasshoppers is increasing first slowly, and then it takes this sort of quantum leap. And I find in just a few steps that I'm now in the midst of what I would estimate after the fact is probably 100 to 120 grasshoppers per square meter. Um, an absolutely um, overwhelming blanket of life and, and scattering, flying, bouncing off my legs, bouncing off my fa face, um, clinging to my legs, clinging to my clothes, crawling up my my legs crawling inside my shirt, um, down my back, down my collar. I'm basically embedded in in this um, in this chaotic um, uh, agglomeration of of grasshoppers, and um, I start brushing them off, and they're they're still coming and bouncing off me and clinging to me, and I have uh, had a panic response, a, a panic reaction. Um, I was momentarily terrified. I couldn't get them off of me. I, I felt closed in in this space. Um, and so I, you know, sort of dashed and staggered my way out of that canyon, my heart pounding, um, you know, sweating. Um, and it was weird because I had never had that response to these insects, but I don't know that I had ever, I know I had never encountered that many all in one place at one time in a closed space. And that sense of being utterly, you talk about invasion, utterly overwhelmed, invaded, um, unable to escape their presence. And um, yeah, it was kind of night, it was nightmarish. You know, I think it's the same, you know, it was the same sense that Alfred Hitchcock tapped into with his movie, The Birds, right? Nobody's afraid of one bird. Um, and the reason why they're so terrifying is because individually, they seem so innocent, um, but a flock of birds that are all bouncing around your living room and whatnot. Of course, those birds were pecking on people too. Um, but it was that kind of, and I and I, I think it was that sense of it was a kind of sense of horror or terror, um, which was really, really, un, well, it was unprecedented for me with insects to have that sort of a reaction. And, and in some ways, trying to figure out what had happened to me. Um, you know, was was one of the catalysts um, for the research that went into the book, The Infested Mind. Well, thank you for sharing that. And it's, it's it, it can be, 
you know, unpleasant talking about these things that have, have frightened us, which I think is, well, thank you for sharing it. I mean, sure. do you think that having that encounter, you know, as, as someone who I dare say over the course of their career has come up against a lot of people who have been frightened of an- insects and who you have, not, I'm not saying you would be dismissive of them, but we've all had these conversations where we're trying to kind of win people around. Do you think that that encounter sort of, did it make you more forgiving of that instinct towards insects, do you think? I, I think I, I had a capacity to empathize with people, responses to insects that prior to that I found sort of more perplexing or um, absurd. Um, and, you know, in, in my case, you know, I can attribute it to, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, to being overwhelmed um, numerically and, you know, literally, you know, sort of having my clothes invaded, my body invaded. But um, it doesn't take much imagination to see or for me to see that it's it's not that great of a leap from what I experienced to what a, another person might imagine um, uh, in the presence of, of a single or just a, a few insects. Sure. I mean, it's it's we all have our kind of our breaking points, I guess. We all have our our limits with these things. I mean, talking about about the fear that people have, the fear that, that anyone has, and the fact that even a, an experienced person can be overwhelmed, can experience that sense of chaos, that overwhelming feeling. I wanted to ask, unquestionably, there is a cultural aspect to our fear of invertebrates, but there is also, you know, the, these aspects of them, which kind of are frightening just as, as a, or are capable of being frightening. They can be frightening. To what degree do you think entophobia, we might term it, is a cultural fear? Ah, oh, that's a that's a good question. I so I see uh, entomophobic responses, or even um, you know, it doesn't have to be a full blown phobia, just what I might call you know, an irrational fear, um, as um, a collusion <laughs> of culture and evolution. I, I think that this deep psychological relationship is 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 grounded in long evolutionary experience. And we might think of insects, I, I think of insects as kind of existing in our minds um, as young children uh, with, with what I'm, you know, what's been sometimes called an evolutionary template or sometimes called prepared learning as, as with language acquisition, right? So the notion is we're born with a, a, a propensity to hear phonemes to hear parts of, of words and then to imitate them. So we we are more able to learn language than we are many other things because, um, and again, it's sort of this prepared learning. And I think we're prepared to learn, we're primed. We're primed to learn about, about these little creatures. Um, one fellow I know who used to refer to it as the evolutionary response of squeal or meal. Um, and that was our ancestors, you know, either, you know, the response was get it off me or eat it. And insects were actually a very important part. And, and in some cultures, they're still a very important part of, of, uh, of protein and as well as, as lipids. They're, they're very nutritious. Um, 
And so there's good reason for our ancestors to have attended to these creatures because they represented both danger and food. And so, you know, an analogy might be something like the color red, right? Red catches our eye. We don't have to be, we don't have to learn to attend to the color red. Um, and so we might say, well, why, why is our attention drawn to the color red? Because red things tend to either warn us, a number of poisonous uh, or venomous creatures are red, um, but red also indicates ripe fruit. So that's sort of the base, right? We have this template. Then culture comes in, and culture learning tells us which things are which, right? Don't touch the snake, eat the apple, right? Um, and so, but our modern culture, modern society, it takes this prepared learning and it teaches us as children that virtually all insects are negative, right? They, you mm-hmm. should be fearful or anxious or dreadful of them. Um, and, you know, in our sort of hyper hygienic urban environment, um, the reality is that most insect encounters are, are aversive, right? You, you know, if you live in an apartment in London, there's not many insects in your kitchen that are good news, right? Um, sure. and, and that's the case for most urban people. You know, maybe the most, uh, you know, the strongest uh, response in recent times to this um, cultural response is bed bugs. I mean, they've just become this source of phenomenal anxiety in various <laughs> urban places. They, but, but think about them. You know, they, they invade our private space, our beds. Um, they come out at night. They suck our blood. I mean, they're, they're, they're basically, you know, six-legged little vampires. Hide during the day. You know, they're difficult to control. Um, and so our imaginations, our cultural uh, proclivities are lay on top of um, this, this prepared learning. You know, for instance, I think it would be very, very difficult to get a child and to teach that child to be fearful of a bunny a little rabbit. Right. Yeah, yeah. You might be able to, but it would take a lot of work to get them mm. to be fearful of a rabbit because they move in these little hopping moves and they're soft and they're fuzzy and they've got big eyes. I mean, they got all the right things. They're like little babies. And so you could teach children to be afraid of rabbits, but it's a lot easier to teach them to be afraid of insects because I think of this this template, this prepared learning. Well, with, with the rabbit... I mean, not only, you know, it would be hard to make a child afraid of rabbits, but also when they watch the TV, they see cheerful rabbits and they see friendly rabbits in a fictional context. But but those rabbits are being imagined in that way because we have a, on, on some level, a, a kind of fonder response because they're relatively non-threatening animals that, like we say, bend to our will. Let's talk a bit more about the idea of insects in, invading our homes and our bodies and the vast majority of people don't want to be preyed on by insects. We don't. We don't want to be have our spaces invaded by insects. Reasonably so, I think. So, in in your book, you explore this idea, this idea of invasion, bodily invasion, and of the invasion of our spaces. And one insect that I hadn't heard about before, which you taught me about, is the cable louse. To give it its, <laughs> its common name, the cable louse. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the cable louse and its about this insect and also its eradication, maybe? <laughs> Right. So the cable louse is, is a wonderful insect because it's an imaginary insect. But and, and so before I let me just define a few terms to explain what was happening with sure. the cable louse. 
Um, so in psychology, and uh, well, in psychology, there are three terms um, that sometimes get confused, understandably. One is a hallucination. Okay, when we hallucinate, it's an internally generated um, sensory experience. So um, suppose you're sitting there, and just out of nowhere, you imagine, you you picture, you think that there's a dove. We'll take a we'll take a bird. There's a dove on your desk, right? And it turns out that you've been, you know, you've got a, a, a mental illness, or maybe you've been taking drugs, or um, but you're having a hallucination. There's actually nothing there at all, right? Um, so it's internally generated. There's nothing nothing present. Now, take take a step sort of towards sanity here, and we get what's called an illusion. Now, this is uh, the best way of understanding an illusion is this is what magicians uh, are experts at. It's creating il illusions. And an illusion is an external sensory experience. So there's really something there, but that but we misperceive it or we misattribute it. So imagine a magician is holding a silk scarf and, and he shakes it three times and on the third shake it becomes a dove, right? That's not a hallucination because there really is something there. Mm. There was a silk scarf that became a dove, but it's an illusion, right? Because the silk scarf didn't really become a dove, right? We've misperceived something, yes. right? We've made a mistake in attributing our world. So that's an illusion. Then a delusion, we speak of people as being delusional. In, in a delusion, we not only have this external sensory experience, but it generates an erroneous belief, right? So suppose I go to the magic show and I see this silk scarf turn into a dove. And now I believe that the magician is capable of incredible power. And I send this magician hundreds of dollars so that he'll use his magic powers to make me rich. Now I'm in the world of delusion, right? I've, I've got this completely false set of, of beliefs based on a mistaken perception. Okay. So let's go back to, let's go back to our cable bugs or cable louse. So this is um, what we might call an illusionary condition or illusory condition. So it, the earliest cases that I know about were British women who were working at telephone switchboards, um, and they reported feeling this tingling, crawling, kind of nipping sensation on their legs. Um, and the sensation was real, right? So they're not having a hallucination. It's a real sensation. But they attributed it to tiny insects. It felt like tiny insects were crawling over their skin and biting them. And so... It turns out that after a, a little bit of investigation, there were electrical cables running beneath their workstations, and these electrical cables were discharging electrostatic shocks, basically tiny shocks, to the nylons that they were wearing on their legs. And they were getting these tiny little discharges that felt like little tickles and then sometimes a sharp pain. And so there, it was just a set of electrical discharges from these uh, electrical cables there were no insects present at all. But these reports were frequent enough that the phenomenon got labeled as cable lice. And it was a name for this electrical discharge. A similar condition was, was seen in American offices. My best story there is there was an office where they had done some renovation 
and fiberglass, this sort of rock wool, these very fine, you know, uh, spun glass, um, had broken free during, you know, they, they use it for insulation, had broken free and these fibers, which are basically invisible, had settled um, under people's workstations, especially these, these women, and uh, it generated an intense itchy sensation and kind of this, this sense of that something was moving on their skin. Um, and it was, in a sense, the same thing as the cable lice. It wasn't electrical. It was, it was this, this glass wool. But both cases are very interesting in the sense that um, evolutionarily, we'll go back to evolution, we're highly sensitive to itch. And we're also very prone to attributing itchiness to something vermin being on our body. And so when we have an itch on our, on our legs or on our back or shoulders or whatnot, and we don't know its source, our tendency is to attribute it to something crawling on us. Sure. Um, and that's what was going on. And, and uh, it's, it's an interesting sort of modern cultural story that overlaps with our evolutionary history of, of having our bodies frequently invaded by lice. You know, the primates, our, our ancestors are uh, very much into grooming one another to remove lice from, you know, from bodies. Um, and so you know, we sort of, you know, if you imagine a, a group of baboons all sitting around picking each each other with lice, and you sort of transport them to a 1960s office. You pretty much have the story of cable lice. Yeah, it's sort of a misfiring of what is, from an evolutionary perspective, a very sensible response, but then which is being yeah. attributed incorrectly. And I should state, talking about things like illusions and delusions. Um, a point I want to make and sort of we're discussing what essentially crosses into a delicate area here, talking about people's mental health and things in your book, you, you do outline sort of therapeutic treatments for people that are struggling with, with entomophobia, which I have noticed that I said entophobia earlier. You've now taught me it's entomophobia. I got it wrong. I won't edit it. The, mis- the mistake will be there forever, <laughs> but this is something that you, you do discuss. So in talking about people that are suffering from, delusions of the presence of insects or things in their body i'm aware that this is a a very serious topic but it is something i'd I'd like to sort of to know about because of its it does inform our relationship with these animals are there examples of of more delusory encounters with insects from people so we can move from uh, the illusion that our insects are on you to a full-blown delusion, right, where you are committed to a belief that your body is infested. Um, and this is sometimes called delusory parasitosis, right? You think you are parasitized. Sometimes uh, the, the delusion involves um, your surroundings, your house, but oftentimes, most often, it's this false belief that one's body is infested with insects. And it may, um, if you look at the etiology or the origin of this in, in, in clinical cases, it may begin with an actual infestation um, or may begin with, with kind of an illusory parasitosis before it develops into this full-blown condition. But the person who is suffering from uh, delusory parasitosis, is re- it's really sort of, it, it's, it's heart-wrenching, right? Because they have this false belief. Um, but imagine that the belief was true, right? Imagine that you actually have tiny, 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 creatures, insects, crawling just beneath the surface of your skin, right? Think about 
what you would do, right? For, you know, and what these people end up doing is they, they treat themselves with, with acids, they treat themselves with bleach, they treat themselves with hot water, with ointments. Um, and then what they'll oftentimes do is scratch. Um, they scratch themselves mercilessly and sometimes even dig into their skin with sharp objects, trying to remove the source of, of this itching irritation, this infestation, this thing crawling just beneath the surface of their skin. And what will happen is both these chemical treatments and the physical um, damage to their skin tends to generate uh, greater irritation. So you get a kind of a positive feedback. Mm. Um, and, and so it becomes, uh, it's a spiral. It's a spiral out of control. And they can end up doing terrible damage to their bodies in trying to rid themselves of an infestation that doesn't exist. And when they're in that sort of full-blown delusory condition, it's very, very difficult um, through sort of uh, oftentimes through standard psychological um, uh, counseling to convince them otherwise. And so a lot of times it'll be a combination of, of both um, therapy uh, as well as drugs. Um, there's, a, there's a number of medications that can be used um, sometimes to diminish this the sensation so that they sort of treat the symptom and then try to get people to to sort of think through, work through the, the unreality that their bodies are infested. Um, but when you've when you've created that world and when you live in that world, it becomes sort of all consuming for these for these poor people. Um, as they um, you know, as they spiral down, it becomes harder and harder to sort of bring them back to reality. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, we do have to be sort of mindful of the, of the fact that people's, yeah, people experience, it must be a, a terrible thing to be to be suffering like this and and people experiencing that. You know, I'm, I'm sure people, even listening to you talk about it, feel an itch on themselves. Treatment is available for people who are struggling with things like this. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, delusory parasitosis is, is very difficult. There is mm -hmm. treatment. Um, what we might call simple entomophobia, an irrational and persistent fear of insects, is actually in some weird way is if if that is something that is interfering with your life, sure. right? So that you, for instance, you can't go down into your cellar, right? Or you have uh, you can't go to certain places out of fear of insects being there. You're actually in a weird way very fortunate in that. Um, these what we call simple phobias are actually one of the most treatable mental conditions that we have. And they're highly treatable through something called cognitive behavioral therapy. I won't go into all of that. But if you are suffering with that, if your life is um, and your mobility and your ability to to engage with the world is is impeded out of, uh, you know, out of a persistent and irrational fear of insects and you realize that you're that this is something you would rather not be dealing with. Um, you know, therapists, um, sometimes in single sessions, but oftentimes over just a few sessions, can move people out of these simple phobias um, through this, this technique called cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. I don't know if this is, I, I may cut this out. The Infested Mind, your, your book, I, I listened to it. I had the audiobook version of the, of the book. Mm. And the time that I was listening to it was a time in my life when I was, I was doing cognitive behavioral therapy as, as a, as a patient, mm. not for entomophobia, but for a, a more generalized anxiety. And 
I found it really empowering to the stuff with the cable lights and things. I remember where I was when I listened to that and having the, the thought of, you know, fears exist and I am not frightened of insects. I do not have entomophobia. I have my other anxieties. Many people do. And, and hearing that fears are things that can be overcome and hearing that fears exist that I don't have and, and just sort of this, this mesh of ideas, I found really empowering. So, so thank you for that. Cause it, it was a, your book came to me at a tough time in my life. So I do hold fond memories of it, not just from a, I'm interested in insects point of view, but I think that broader discussion of fear is an important thing. And so, yeah, thank you for that. Well, well, no, I just want to you know, just say something in response to that. And that is, um, thank you for that. And I, if, if I've done anything to, to, to let people have an honest and open discussion about mental health, I mean, our approach to mental health has got to be one of the most tragically twisted mm. <laughs> sociological phenomena in the world. Um, the number of people who, who wrestle with, with anxiety or wrestle with phobias or who wrestle with depression um, or whatever it may be is, is absolutely staggering. But our inability to talk about it and, and, and when we realize that we aren't all alone, we aren't the only person with a phobia, we're not the only person with anxiety, we're not the only person with depression. That can be, you know, that can be really something that's that's empowering, that's powerful, that, you know, it's not as if I'm some sort of an aberrant human being. Mm. As a matter of fact, if you don't have <laughs> any degree of one of these these mental challenges, psychological challenges, I think you're probably I think you're probably aberrant. You've got to have a degree of a bit, otherwise uh Maybe deluded about the state of the world, but let's. Um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that an open and frank discussion of mental health is a a challenging thing to have, but a, an incredibly worthwhile thing to have, and something that people do struggle with. And I, I think it's getting better. So let's hope so. On that note, let's take a a sharp and sudden left hand turn <laughs> into television. So hearing you talk about earlier your experience out in with the grasshoppers and the idea of being the fear of being covered, the, the fear of being invaded. It made me think of a, a TV show we have that kind of sparks ethical debates every year. I don't know if you have it in the States. It's called I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. That we have over here. And in this program, the, the premise is <laughs> celebrities go to the jungle in inverted commas. Well, it is, it is a jungle. Um, and, go through a series of challenges which generally involve them being covered in insects or being forced to eat insects and other things too and other challenges too but but this the, the kind of the, the bug aspect of the program looms large and it every year sparks a lot of ethical debates about you know our treatment of insects and things but the, the thing i was thinking about is it, it pushes this idea that insects and invertebrates are evil and frightening and that they are there to, to trouble us as well as, you know, be reinforcing the idea they are disposable. They are of little value of little, they demand no respect, but beyond that program, I mean, like we said earlier, insects, invertebrates, spiders, you know, 
endlessly are used as symbols of fear in TV and movies. I wonder, as someone who's worked extensively with invertebrates, how do you feel about the way that, that they are portrayed in the media? <laughs> you know, we don't have that program, thank God. Um, but we had one that it's not around any longer, which is also a reason for thanks. It was called Fear Factor. And it was, I think the premise was, I guess we couldn't get celebrities. So we just got these sort of average, you know, people to sort of, you know, they, they would come up with these being covered in worms or cockroaches or whatever the heck was. It wasn't so much out in nature, but yeah, there was this, there was this element of fear, disgust and insects and, and invertebrates, worms and whatnot would, would play a, a you know, pretty frequent role. So what to make of that? Well, so trying to be charitable here to the media, which is <laughs> more than they deserve sometimes. Um, I think the animals, these creatures are, are terribly misrepresented, but to be honest, the, I, I understand, I understand the portrayals. Um, look, if you want to evoke fear and disgust without actually endangering the contestants, then insects are an ideal approach, right? So, you know, as a producer, you want the fear and disgust, but you don't want anyone to actually be in danger. Well, I mean, insects are, are you know, and invertebrates in general, boy, they're your answer, right? You, and, and so, you know, this, this tapping into fear, you know, we could, you know, maybe we could, we could go way back in time, right? To sort of the, you know, the original, um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And that would have been, um, you know, the, the, the Pharaoh of ancient Egypt who defied God in the book of Exodus, right? And what did God do? God sent all kinds of insect plagues. Sure. Yeah, he yeah. sent locusts, he sent flies, he sent frogs. He, well, frogs are vertebrates, so we can't quite count them. But he sent a bunch of insects, mm. right? And so how dramatically, did, in the book of Exodus, they didn't have film at the time, right? Although they, they, there is that, you know, uh, Yule Brenner and the Ten Commandments, sure. which is a pretty funny movie. <laughs> um, but, but what's the big difference between the story of Exodus you know, um, in the Old Testament, and I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Um, <laughs> Got to be a first-time comparison there, hasn't it? <laughs> right. right, I mean, but if but if, if God figured out you, you scare the crap out of people with insects to punish the Egyptians, then, you know, and so then we fast forward, right, to, I don't know, the monster movies of the 50s and 60s with giant ants and swarms of bees and, uh, you know, that, that actually, it's a really kind of wonderful film that's been made and remade, and I think there's now a musical or an opera of it, The Fly, right, yeah. where a person partially becomes a fly. Um, and so, you know, we can pick on, you know, the you know the, the, the cheap move being made by the producers of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, you know, but they're really just, you know, they're just... You know, the, a, a recent manifestation of a of a millennial old um, practice of inducing fear and disgust by putting people in proximity to insects. So, is it fair to the insects and to the spiders and to the worms? No, they're horribly misrepresented. Um, but do I get it? I not only do I get it, I think it's kind of you know strangely fascinating read in in the history of western media 
if we include the book of Exodus all the way through reality television as media. It's an interesting thing because I, as, as we've said, I think no one is scared of spiders. No, no one becomes scared of spiders when they read Lord of the Rings, when they see Harry Potter. I, I think that it, it, it plays into it maybe, but it's not, it's not creating that fear. And so the ethical discussions and things of these real life uses of insects, that's perhaps a separate thing and, and certainly a worthy conversation. You're not going to get away from this idea that the insects frighten people, whether perhaps our, we will shift in a more ethical way, whether at some point in the future, our relationship with insects has to change in terms of food sources and things like that. Perhaps we shall see. But to go back to something that you said at the very start of, of us talking about um, the dead frog and things, this, this idea that fear and disgust and fascination kind of come hand in hand and often we're compelled by things that disgust us. It's why we, it's why we seek out horror films, right? It's why we watch I'm a Celebrity. I think that people that are interested in insects and invertebrates, to some degree, it can almost be seen as a countercultural movement. Scorpions and, and spiders kind of they loom large as as countercultural figures you see them on in tattoos and belt buckles and whatnot so th- there's a part of me that wants everyone to to like insects and invertebrates but there's also a part of me that acknowledges that one of the things I probably like about them is the fact that I know it's a niche interest and I, I feel in some way empowered by the fact that I take an interest in something that frightens other people do you think that there is a a certain defiance in being interested in invertebrate life, kind of like a, a thrill in the taboo, as it were. Well, you know, I, I I'm absolutely think that's the case, right? And I think it does have uh, this taboo quality. So, I mean, one of the <laughs> so my my version of this, right, is going to a you know a party, right, and where you don't know many people and whatnot. And one of the first questions they ask you is, well, what do you do, right? And when you tell them you're an entomologist, first of all, they have to figure out what that is. Yeah, you study words. Yes, right. So I study insects. Well, and and talk about kind of a, a weird social power, right? You are immediately interesting, mm. right? And and I have almost never encountered a person, you know, in a social setting where I say that where where they they the next thing they want to do is share their story. Mm-hmm. Right. Whatever that story is, right? That you know, they they were at a hotel where there were bed bugs or they saw a centipede in their in their bathtub in Mexico or whatever the hell the story is, they almost always have an insect story. Um and so it's a weird kind of connection. It's a weird kind of uh it is a kind of uh, a kind of power, a kind of defiance, right? It's um, you know, we do have a television program over here. I don't know if you have it over there. It's not one of our exports that we're most proud of if we do. <laughs> Um, it's, it's a program called dirty jobs, right? And this is a program in which the host goes around visiting people who make their living doing work in, in either frightening right. or repulsive environments. We have, we have, a, we have equivalents. Okay. Very popular. There's a kind of empowerment that comes from doing these jobs, right? That nobody else will do. It's kind of both, it's kind of revolting, right? But it's also fascinating. Um, and, and really, uh, you know, that kind of push-pull is, you know, is, has been called by people who study aesthetics and other fields, um, the sublime, right? 
it draws you closer and it pushes you away. Um, and so the ability, um, you know, just to, to tell people you're interested in insects is sort of like saying, you know, I stand on the edge of cliffs. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, it, it's whoa. I'm not afraid. Essentially, it's showing off. Right. You know, and, and in some ways, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's part of the power, quite frankly, I think, uh, in some cases of first responders. Right. Um, a, a first responder has been trained to overcome that which any reasonable person would be fearful of. Right. There's a reason you don't run into burning houses. Right. And there's a reason why you, you know, you don't like to handle mucus, blood and feces. Um, so fear and disgust are really kind of two of, you know, they're, they're sort of these these great emotional obstacles to, to many people in the field of, you know, that we call first responders who mm. who have to overcome their aversion to that, which is either disgusting or frightening um, and sort of. And so I think an interest in insects kind of taps into it. I know I, re, I know, remember when I was a kid and when I was you know, contemplating college and whatnot, you know, th- there was a kind of rush of of studying that. It's a little bit forbidden, right? Yeah. It's a little bit offbeat. Um, um, you know, it kind of raises an eyebrow, you know, it. Um, so I think you're right. I think there is an element of, of sort of, you know, running with that, which is taboo that, um, yeah, that it, it would it be you're right. It's kind of funny, right? If nobody, it's sort of like saying, you know, somebody says, "We'll go back to bunnies," right? And you say, "So what do you do for a living?" And you say, "Well, you know, I'm a bunny biologist." Mm. You know, you're not going to get a whole lot of people yeah. terribly excited. Everyone's got a perspective on insects, right? Right, but you know, and so if everybody was, you know, had no reaction, no negative reaction to insects. And you said, I'm interested in insects. It'd be like saying that, you know, I'm interested in rabbits. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's just not, you're, you're not an interesting person studying something that is, you know, that's uh, evocative or provocative. And of course, we, we mean no offense to the good people studying rabbits. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. right now you're going to, you're going to get lots of email from the rabbit biologists. So yeah, sorry about that. Dribbing in the warren. Maybe that's an interesting point to end on then. So I asked you at the start, are invertebrates frightening? So to end with a kind of slight shift in my, in my wording, do you think people should be frightened of invertebrates? Um, I, I think people should learn enough about invertebrates to distinguish those that are actually dangerous from the vast majority that are not. Mm. I, I think it is sensible to be able to make that distinction. I think most people don't make that distinction now. I think we're biologically, quite frankly, entomologically stupid. And so anything that has six legs is the enemy. Um, and that is not helpful to us. It's not helpful to them. We saturate our environment with pesticides. We end up poisoning ourselves and and our six-legged neighbors. So no, people should not fear them um, in that way. I think I, I think I would want people to respect them, right? Um, because they, you know, they they can you know they can inflict pain. They can um, transmit disease, right? Um, you know, someone was you know I had this friend who was very much into biophilia, right? the love of all living things. Mm. Um, I think the theory has some real problems, 
Um, but, you know, as hard as that is, I think something like entomophilia, where people cultivate a love of insects, I think that's implausible. I think it's asking more of people than our evolutionary and cultural story is capable of supporting. But I don't want people to be entomophobic, irrationally fearful of insects. And so I would just settle for right now. I invented this term. It was called entomoapathia, right? right? And I think if we could get people to encounter an insect, to make a very simple distinction between whether or not it represents any sort of, of proximate danger and let them just live and let live right? Mm. Just let them be. You don't have to, and it's, it's, you know, you don't have to love them, but for goodness sake, stop crushing them. Uh, Just let them be, you know, curiosity and wonder would be great. Right. Um, Or just a quiet nod to them. Right. Um, You know, my, that, that would be a a vastly better world um, than what we've got right now. So should we fear them? Um, you know, uh, I, I think, I think fear is adaptive and, um, and I think actually, I think disgust is adaptive too. I, you know, I used to go out and collect these, these gigantic grasshoppers, largest grasshoppers in my area of the world called lubbers. And these things are, are, you know, like, you know, the size of a half a cigar and they're, you pick them up and they, they just defecate this mushy feces all over you and they regurgitate this, this fluid out of their mouths, out of their guts. Um, and they're just awful. They're just genuinely disgusting. And and God bless them, right? Um, it's not their fault, is I it? Think the prop- well, I think the proper response to them is disgust, mm. right? Um, I actually think in an evolutionary sense, they, they may actually be tapping into disgust um, or aversion. And so that's probably, and, and, you know, when you're out in the garden and you've disturbed, as I did a couple of years ago, um, a buried nest of, of, of hornets and, and I got stung, you know, that hurt. And, and, and <laughs> I ran away sure. right? because, because um, you know, and actually, but there was also, there was also, there was also this marvel, right? I, I hate to say this, but it, it was so the, the, the infinitesimal volume of liquid that that insect injected into into my my hand, right, was would be almost invisible. It's so small, but it generated such intense and lasting pain that it actually was a source of marvel. It's like holy crap! What an evolutionary accomplishment. Well, I've, I've good on this, you, buddy. <laughs> this is the uh, that here, here comes a bit of entomological scandal for a for an invertebrate podcast, but I've, I've never been stung by a bee or a wasp. So I can, I can't relate (laughs) in that sense, but, but yeah, it is reasonable to be frightened of being stung by insects. It's reasonable to be frightened of, or or rather of some insects, particularly where I am in the UK. There really aren't that many animals that can do you a great deal of harm. You know, we haven't got spiders that are going to leave lasting damage. We haven't got some, some of the animals that might occur in other parts of the world that will that you need to be rightly afraid of. Um, on the other hand, you know, we're never going to arrive in the world in which we're happy to have insects contaminate our food and rightly so. But if people, if people do come away from, from listening to this interview and they think I am 
interested in insects. I'd like to know more about insects and insect adjacent ideas, but also I like the, I like this man, this this interesting man who's speaking. Um, the Infested Mind, which is a, a fantastic book. I'd urge everyone towards that. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of your other projects, which which listeners might enjoy. Oh, sure. I um, So there's a couple other, well, I've got several books, but maybe a couple that might be particularly interesting for your listeners. There's one called Grasshopper Dreaming. Um, it's a set of essays, natural essays, um, uh, mostly about my encounter with grasshoppers um, and locusts sort of around the world. Um, and Grasshopper Dreaming gets its title um, from uh, the notion of dream time in Australia. So there's a an essay in there recounting an experience that I had in Australia with the Australian plague locust. Um, another book that people might enjoy is one called Six-Legged Soldiers. It's a history of the use of insects as uh, weapons of war, terror, and torture um, throughout throughout the, the story of, of uh, basically, well, it, it goes all the way back to Exodus, right? And you know, one of the <laughs> earliest stories is, you know, God's use of insects as to wage entomological warfare against the Egyptians. Um, so there's those two books. Um, I might suggest maybe that people would enjoy um, uh, going onto YouTube and typing into the search window, Locust Opera, and then throw in Laramie, L-A-R-A-M-I-E. That's the town that I live in. Um, and what you'll get access to is um, three uh, a three-part um, chamber opera. It only takes an hour to listen to the three parts. And it's the operatic story of the Rocky Mountain locust, which is this insect that once formed the largest swarms in, in, uh, in well, in human history. Um, and so that story is told in the form of an opera. There's a, it's based on a book I wrote called, called Locust as well. So you could read the book or watch the opera. It's kind of fun to watch an opera about an insect. Um, and whether or not you're an opera fan, I think people will enjoy it. We're going to, you know, with a little bit of luck with the ongoing pandemic, we'll be performing the opera at the World Conservation Congress in Marseille, France in early September. Um, so uh, a little bit of reading, a little bit of a little bit of musical theater. Well, fantastic. I think that's a, a wonderful note to end on to, to have this extended discussion of, of stings and of fear and of horror and infestation and to end on a an operatic note is a charming thing. So, so thank you so much for for agreeing to speak with me. I really do appreciate you taking time out, sharing your expertise, sharing your experience. So, thank you so much, Jeff. Well, thank you for having me, Tom. It's been it's been a delight. Personally, of course, I want people to think that insects and invertebrates are interesting, because I'm so sure of the fact that they are, and I'm assured in my belief that the appreciation of that fact is a boon. Without fear of invertebrate life, with an appreciation even. You have a whole new world to explore, bizarre and multifaceted and exciting and weird. But I'm under no illusions that everyone's going to be one round. And yes, like we said, I do think that part of the appeal of invertebrates is that thrill of the taboo. For many things, passing into the mainstream culture is the death knell of what makes them special to people. We do like to have our things, things that are for us. Insects and invertebrates are not about to leap into absolute favour. It simply won't happen. Insect keys will not be bestsellers. Rylan won't present a spider-themed panel show. An appreciation for the natural world is a good thing, categorically in my opinion. Trying to develop a culture of appreciation and respect is worthwhile and, 
I dare say, important. We sit on the cusp of, if not within, a time of absolute climate crisis and mass extinction. Education, awareness and care are the watchwords if the human race and our planet have much hope. In this episode, we've spoken at length about mental health, about our fears or anxieties and the ways in which the world of invertebrates intersect with these notions. Whether or not an invertebrate podcast is the most artful place to make this point, I hope the point has been made. We must learn compassion, practice empathy and be considerate of both our mental well-being and the mental well-being of others. A fear is not a weakness or a flaw, it is a fear. We are all at the whims of cultural forces which are hard to struggle against. The casual destruction of spiders, the view that an invertebrate's life is inherently worthless, is a difficult thing to come back against, being profoundly ingrained, at least in the culture within which I've grown up. It is a struggle. We would do well to be aware of this. Perhaps you came to this episode thinking, insects are horrific and I'm a glutton for punishment. Exceptionally unlikely, but who knows? My hope is that you would come away wanting to know more and I hope you keep listening. For those of you with a fondness for invertebrate life, let's be mindful of the fact that people's fears and attitudes are not there to spite us. For some of us, who are so minded, we can do a little outreach, however minor, on behalf of our creeping, crawling mates. I shall continue to share and explore and learn. If you'd like to join me in that, please join me again next time to Grub in the Filth. Grubbing in the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton. And thanks again to Jeffrey Lockwood. Social media connects and obliterates us, spiralling us all into terrible, heaving anxiety and crises of self. Why not descend with me? On Twitter, it's at GITF Podcast, and on Instagram, it's at Grubbing in the Filth. You can also email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com. Until next time, take care. Bye.